This is CouncilCast, part of the Legal Talk Network, and I'm your host, Karen Conroy. When you face a complex case outside your expertise, you bring in a co-counsel for next-level results. When you want to engage, expand, and elevate your firm, you bring in a marketing co-counsel. In this podcast, I bring in marketing experts who each answer one big question to help your firm achieve more. Here's today's guest. My name's Robert. I'm the CEO of Brill Media, and I uh, really appreciate you having me on today. Thanks, Robert. We are. This is going to be a good one because I feel like there's a lot of questions around. So your agency or your firm kind of focuses on advertising, paid media, and tr- trying to kind of use advertising for growth. And the title of the show, we're going to get more specific into ads and how to make them work in the best way. But w- what we're going to start with is to redesign or not. Yeah. What's best for advertising growth? So let's just kind of dig right in. And we're going to imagine that the kind of advertising we're talking about is mostly online paid, online paid advertising, right? right? We're not talking about billboards. We're not talking about yellow pages. Right. Okay. So let's start by talking first about the design of an ad, what works, and at what point does it make sense to think about changing it? Yeah, so we build in a creative testing framework to uh, as a foundation of our campaigns. So it's not a question of should you redesign. It's much more of a question of how often do you need to iterate on your ad creative. Oh, yeah, so, I like that. And yeah. and let's sorry to interrupt, no. but let's kind of dig into that to begin with because I don't think that's something that necessarily comes naturally in the thought process to a lot of people. That out of the gate, how many versions of an ad do you typically recommend? Five. We're talking about meta, for example, we start with five ads and we then disassemble them. Okay. So let's, can you kind of walk us through that process and, and is five just an arbitrary, it can't be an arbitrary number. There's got to be a reason why you start with five. Five is easy for people to create. Like it's not like a hundred. Yeah. And um, it gives you a lot of variation. So when you think about meta, you have the headline, the image or video, and then the primary text and so when you have five ads, you actually have 15 different elements. Yeah. And when you when you combine those different elements, you have five times five times five, you have 125 different variations to look at. So you actually are testing not five ads, but 125 different variations. And from there, every three to four weeks, we want to identify the one all-star ad out of that group of 125 possible variations. And so- that's when you start to create your all-star team. Okay, so how does that work? How how does that work over time? What key, what do you typically see if you start with five, which is really 125 ads, and then you refine over time? How do you see that working over the course of that refinement? Yeah, so the first one to two days, you are calling from 125 down to the top 20 ad variations, okay. and you do that with control variable testing, and then the next two to two and a half weeks, you're doing dynamic creative testing. So basically what you're saying is there's one or two headlines that did really well, one or two images or video, or one or, and one or two primary texts. Maybe somewhere in there, there's a third option, but whatever, you have under 20 total variations. Okay. And you turn on dynamic creative testing, optimized to your lead objective. And then what you're telling Facebook is, serve up any combination of these ads that are going to give you the best 
possible outcome driving leads for your business. And by the way, as an aside, when we talk about Facebook, we're talking about meta and we're talking about inventory on Facebook or Instagram to to media buyers, it doesn't matter. Like there could yeah. be one outlier person who's on Instagram that loves what you're doing and wants to work with you. That's fine. You should serve there. Yeah. You don't need separate creative for Facebook and Instagram. It's just one source of inventory. So yeah. when you're doing the dynamic creative, you have these up to 20 different variations. You could have 18, you could have 12, you could have six, whatever the case is. And you're giving the algorithm time to understand which method which ad creative is the best for your ads for your messaging to achieve the results and then what you can then do over the course of one or two weeks is identify the one ad facebook will tell you which one ad is the best and that's your all-star so you went from 125 down to 20 down to one you cycle through that every three to four weeks and you're going to see most of your conversions so most of your leads are going to come from your all-star ads your group of all-stars Okay. All right. That was really like a masterclass in such a nutshell <laughs> of kind of setting Thanks. up those ads. So I, I feel like that's, that is something that not everybody totally understands too. They, they think because typically as a user, when you're on Facebook and you see these ads, you see the same ad over and over. And that is probably because they've honed it down to that master ad, right? The all-star ad that you were talking about. Yeah. And so you didn't necessarily see all of those other iterations that some of your, you know, friends or whatever might have seen. And so you just continue to see those all-star ads. Is that is that a is that correct? You will see the all-star ads, but there are also brands that do very minor creative tests. So we put together a recession marketing guide and the recession marketing, it's called be something about recession marketing superhero. I think that's what it is. And we're just launching it in the next week. And during that research, we looked at like other just general brands, consumer brands, Hershey's, the tourism board for Curacao. Anyway, and a bunch <laughs> of, yeah, I used to that work on that. Random. It's the most random thing. Aruba, Bonaire, <laughs> and Curacao. I used to work on that like a decade okay. ago. So I followed, when I think about tourism, I think about them. Yeah. Yeah, totally random. Okay. <laughs> Hershey's and Curacao. <laughs> yeah, I don't see any connection. Like my brain is really working hard to bring those two together and I'm not there's finding it. it. <laughs> I've done a little bit of consulting work for Hershey's as well. Okay. All right. There's people. the connection. <laughs> That's the connection. So I pay attention yeah. to these fans. Hewlett Packard, which I've never done any work for. But anyway, I looked at Facebook ads library and what you'll see, even Jira Atlassian, what they'll do is they'll have the same ad with slightly different imagery or, or copy in the text. To, so to everyone except... To everyone, hopefully not including the people running the ads, the yeah. ads look exactly the same, but like there's one line of text that's different. So yeah. there's like there's very granular creative testing, but what we're talking about is really creative testing that the the philosophy on Facebook is that the platform has so much data over the course of 10 or 15 years on all of us mm -hmm. that it knows when you're in market for things. So here's an here's yeah. an interesting example of that. I'm going off on a tangent a little bit, but it, it demonstrates yeah, no, it, what's happening with Facebook. Sure. So I used to believe this wasn't the case, but now I'm 100% sure it is. Facebook, when you turn on advanced matching inside Facebook, you are basically giving your advertising data to Facebook. And as a result, say you have two products. What are you in market for? A, a pen. Pencil. This is a yeah, Mont Blanc. Okay. Okay? okay. You have a Mont Blanc, right? It's my fancy pen that I got for myself one year. If you're in market for one of these things and you go to add to cart and you don't actually purchase... 
the competing, which I don't even know what the competing company is for this, but the competing fancy pen company will be serving you ads because Facebook knows that you're ready to buy. Yep. And if you're not ready for the Mont Blanc, you're ready for the other fancy pen company, whatever it yes. is. Yeah. So, so Facebook has all that data. What we really, the, the thesis around Facebook is we want to train Meta's machine learning algorithm to find your, your, your best customers. Yeah. Part of the way we do that is with creative testing. So with creative, different messages get delivered to different people based on the type of message it is. Long form messages get delivered to people that like long form messages, short form messages to short form message recipients, images to people who like images, videos to people who like videos, et cetera. And it goes on and on. You show an ad with a man in it, whoever responds to that ad will more likely get that in women and products and services and happy clients and unhappy clients and all that thing. It just gets routed to the right person. So creative becomes, creative has always been the king and media the queen of advertising, right? Mm -hmm. So it's much more important than ever for creative to be consistently cycled through so you can understand who your best customers are as a result of what you see in, in, in Meta's business manager for your ads. Okay, so we started out by talking about how whether you should or shouldn't redesign. So let's say you've started a campaign and it's not necessarily going the way you want it. You're not getting a response or it's not converting as well. The more I'm hearing you explain this, uh, my understanding is that you should have more iterations rather than a redesign. Is that kind of a fair strategy in terms of giving Facebook more things to test out instead of trying to send over a new ad copy, ad, ad design, ad graphic, whatever, instead of just kind of sending over one at a time, you should be sending Facebook, you should be starting out with a whole bunch of different variations that are significantly different from each other so that you yes. can really test. 100%. That's exactly it. So it's okay. not a redesign. It's just built into your, your into advertising your... framework, iterative ad creation. All right. So let's say in this case, you started out with a whole bunch of ads. You gave them a bunch of variations. They were all significantly different enough so that there was kind of the things you were describing. There was a picture of a man. There was a picture of a woman. There was like a bright color, a dark color. There was differences in the content, whatever, but it's still not really going so well. So then what's, what's the first step after that? What, what's your first recommendation to kind of take a step back and rethink? Well, you'll find winners. So every three to four weeks, you'll find your creative from 125, 125 variations down to one. Okay. So then the question is, are you getting leads off of your dynamic creative testing ads? Because you're optimizing the conversions and your one all-star ad. And then in, by month five, you have five all-star ads. So you're cycling through this. Are you getting leads, number one? And are you getting the right type of leads, number two? Okay. So if the answer is yes, and you keep doing what you're doing, if the answer is no, then you need to refine your creative. So for example, change the sophistication level of the creative. Do you want okay. to make the creative look more fancy or more approachable? Do you, you know, if all your ads have your practice partners in in the ads and that's not converting, like okay, take that as a sign. Maybe maybe people and, people and faces are not the right it's not the right <laughs> yeah. thing. But yeah. maybe it's consumers' faces. Maybe people don't resonate with the lawyers' faces. Maybe people resonate with the car accident victim. Yeah. Right? So yeah. 
Typically, I find that the opposite, though. I will say that a lot of people want to use stock photos. And so they've got these kind of like, you know, terrible pictures of a person on the side of the road with their hands up on their head (laughs) thinking, oh, no. And it just looks like such a corny stock photo. But when you do put in like one of your partners or a real face, it's clearly someone in the firm. And it's a well done photo, especially if it's a picture that looks like they know what they're talking about and their their face is looking like, hey, I've got your answer, then that usually, in my experience, converts way better than a corny stock photo. Is that what 100%. you find too? Yeah. 100%. 100%. Yeah. I, w- I would then say that, you know, change your language, right? Yes. The language yeah. is, you know, are you writing at a fourth grade level? Are you writing at a, you know, college level? Like, who do you want right. to attract? Yeah. Then there's the idea of, negative language and positive language, right? There's the positive language of we'll help you or the negative language is don't don't get left behind. Yeah. The don't versus the do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So tell me some examples of mistakes that people have made in any of this kind of work. So either not necessarily just in the creative and the ad creation part, but maybe in the other question I had that kind of ties into this is let's say it's not going so well. There's got to be info that you can look at that you're getting from that refinement process that you can kind of take a look at and say, okay, these are the kind of people that are, that are responding. Is that right or not? So in terms of like looking at what's happening and taking that information in, what are some mistakes that you've seen that people make in in this whole process? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about meta, so I'll stay with meta, but we can go outside of that. But basically, you know, keyword targeting and interest targeting are very granular, but they're not the most up-to-date use of how meta wants advertisers to use their platform. So Okay. So what's what what does Meta want then? If because I feel like that is where everyone starts is with keyword targeting. Right. They kind of dig down and they've got their list and they got the spreadsheet and they're they're going to go for that and that's that's how they measure it. So if that's not what Meta wants, then what? Right. So a lot of that is stated in the Performance Five. Like if you Google Performance Five from Facebook, you'll see more details around that. They want the campaign to be op. They want your campaign to be optimized at the campaign level, not at the ad group level. That's number one. Okay. Number two, they're incentivizing broad targeting, age, gender, and location. And age, gender, and location seems very much counterintuitive because you're like, hey, I want people who are car accident victims or are yeah. newly married or whatever the situation might be. But what you're what you're doing is is short term benefit and long term loss, right? Okay. So what you want to do is train Meta's machine learning algorithm to find your best customers, and as a result you're leveraging that 10 or 15 years of data that Facebook has on people and behaviors. So the person who's in the car accident victim group keyword may not actually be the right person for you for a number of reasons. Maybe there was a person with a car accident, but the behaviors don't put them into that keyword group or uh, they've already converted. And so like you're wasting your money serving ads to them because they're already working with a legal group. Sure. So that's number one. Okay, so number one is really Meta wants you to cast a wider net. Cast a wider net and let the algorithm do its job. Figure it out. Okay, all right. That's That's, number one. That does seem counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive. It's completely counterintuitive. Okay. But if you want long-term growth and and you don't want to be worried about... Because what happens with keyword and interest targeting, and by the way, that means no remarketing, no lookalike targeting either, because all that is wrapped into the broad targeting you're doing. 
Yeah, that was my next question. I was going to get into remarketing. So, so let's follow, let's follow up with these things that Meta wants. Cause then I do want to get into the whole idea of remarketing and, and, mm-hmm. and why not? <laughs> okay. Yeah. The, the why not? The, the answer for why not is that again, the algorithm knows if I, if I add something to a shopping cart for a specific product, you, you can actually serve me an ad can be served to that user because I went to someone else's shopping cart. Okay. Okay. And, and that, and that's not remarketing. Because... And that's not specifically remarketing, but it's yeah. like in, in intent to purchase, right? Sure. When you look at remarketing, what you end up doing is serving a lot of ads to people, a lot of them who already transacted with you. And so, yeah, you're going to do the best on remarketing, but what you end up doing is you, you suffocate the demand creation component of your business. Oh, so when that's you, fascinating. When you, when you suffocate, like you want Facebook to have a nice combination of upper funnel demand, middle funnel consideration, and lower funnel scooping up the performance. If you okay. just do remarketing, that's cool. You're going to, your, your marketing is going to look great, but is your business actually growing or are you just yes. getting a lot of attributable conversions from your remarketing? Right. That you may have already had anyway, because these could be like past clients, current clients, people who are going yeah, to your website a, anywhere. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that, so then that brings up the next kind of like general point of looking at advertising as a holistic full funnel perspective, right? Like you don't want Google. It's for most businesses, Google is going to be the best performing channel. So you don't, but, but to be fair, Facebook might be the best performing for for other businesses, but whatever the case is, you're going to have the best performing channel, whatever that might be. Let's just call it for this example, Google. That doesn't mean turn off Facebook because Facebook is not doing as well. That means your demand, your business is growing because people are, you're starting more consumer journeys on Facebook, Meta, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah. But the results are coming in, the, the conversions, the, the, the leads are co- or the sales are coming in from Google. Yeah. You turn off Meta, your Google reser- results will not perform as well. And by the yeah. way, it's not just Google search, it's Google SEO, it, like yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. You run connected television ads, they're never going to compete with Google, but more demand. Yeah, more people to ready to purchase. So I think the other the other fundamental mistake I see a lot of businesses make is they don't consider the whole demand funnel. They just look yes. at the bottom of the funnel and say, "Let's just yep. do more of this," and they're yep. driving their business into the ground. Oh, I could not agree more. This is somewhere where the, where we really focus on. We have this long term, year long marketing strategy program, and this is what we do with these clients is. Every month when we have a conversation, we sit down and we look at the literal graphic of the marketing funnel that we've developed and we say, okay, let's step through each of these layers. And if you don't know what a marketing funnel is, I'm just going to really quickly describe uh, a funnel. <laughs> so imagine kind of a, a upside down triangle. And at the top, you've got awareness. So just getting your name out there, showing up and writing articles on websites, writing your own articles on your blog, going to networking events. It doesn't always have to be online awareness. So just getting your name out there for, you know, for whatever. It could be that your name is getting out there because you're doing a certain kind of case and people are knowing that you do this kind of work and you're really good at it. So that's awareness. And then as you move through the funnel, there's different layers. I'm not going to go into every single level of the funnel, but they're getting, they're going through the decision process. And you as a firm or anyone selling anything has to be present at the various points of that funnel. And there's different places and methods and strategies of being present with your marketing at each of those points, because it would feel weird if 
you treated a person like you had just met them when they've been following you for years, you've had phone calls, you've sent them a proposal, you know, whatever the case might be. So this is this is really, really important. And why I'm underlining this whole point that you were making a minute ago is that you have to have a strategy for all of those levels. And this ties into your ad and growth strategy as well, that if you only focus on that bottom, like where people are actually picking up the the phone or signing a, a contract, you're really missing out. And so you need to think of all of those different levels and how you approach them and how you pull people in and move them through your funnel. And I just wanted to spend a minute on that because I feel like that's a really huge, massive missing piece for most people. They're like, okay, I've got one, I've got energy for one thing. <laughs> so I'm going to throw it all at pay-per-click and that's going to be it. That's my entire marketing strategy. And it's, it doesn't work that way. And that's, I mean, that, that segue is really nicely into why most businesses, especially lawyers, right? Like need an agency. Yes. Even, even low cost, right? Low cost, yeah. you know, not, even if you're not spending a lot, because what's your highest value work? Your highest value work is a thing you spent many, many years getting your degree in and helping people not doing this stuff, which is compared to what lawyers are doing, lower value work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's not your expertise either. So you can sit and try to, you know, put this stuff together and whatever. But first of all, it's probably going to be very siloed where you're throwing together some Instagram posts or you're thinking about, you know, whatever the case might be. And there's no plan and strategy where it's all working together and feeding into each other and making sense to the person who's going to go through that. And so that's going to be felt by the people who experience all of those pieces of marketing, where they come to your website and it doesn't make any sense for what they saw on Instagram. And then they see an ad, but it, you know, like it's all disjointed and messy. And that's a really bad first impression. 100%. You've yeah. got to have a strategy. Exactly. Okay. So it is time for the book review. So okay. I know you've got a good one. So I was just going to say it, but instead I'm going to let you <laughs> say it. So Robert, tell me about the book that you have to add for our library today. Yeah. It's uh, Robert Cialdini's uh, Persuasion book. Okay. So and I know his other book about persuasion. What is, I don't know this one. Persuasion is about priming your customer to take action the, oh, the desired perfect. action that you want, right? Persuasion is after the fact. Persuasion is prior to the fact. So I hope I have this right because it's been a little bit since I've read the book. But yeah. persuasion is about, you know, taking advantage of human psychology to get people prepared to buy from you. So, for example, the the, the conversation around top of the funnel demand, generating demand is the difference between what you're doing with generating demand is you're telling people that you exist and what you do to exist. And yeah. at the bottom of the funnel, you're saying now, now buy from me. So that's right. one way of priming the customer. You're telling people who you are before they can buy for buy from you. That's number one of a, a very simple human interaction would be, you know, there, there are places in like airports and whatnot where, where people might hand you something, a gift, yeah. like in Egypt for tour, like locals in Egypt. I've, I've seen this. I haven't experienced this. will give people, like a necklace or a chain or some flower or something. And they'll say, here, this is for you. But you end up giving them money because it's a, it's a way to reciprocate, 
the, rec- yeah. the issue, the, the thing around reciprocity. So, you know, you look at marketing and advertising lead guides, you know, giving people your email address and exchanging for downloading something. That's a level of reciprocity. It, yeah. it's, it's a little, it's far more diluted right now because there's right. too much of that. But human to human, if you give, if you walk down the street and give someone to something, they will either say no or they will feel indebted to you to give yeah. you something back. So that's a that's an element of of priming the consumer to buy from you. I love this. And the example I use for for this type of interaction all the time is that I'm a big fan of Trader Joe's. And this has changed since the pandemic, but they still do have samples in a in a little different way. And they're not doing it. I mean, you know, typically the Trader Joe's people are pretty great, but they're not doing it just because they're nice. They know that it drives sales, but they are not standing at that that sample area, whether they're kind of in the store in that where it used to be like a little corner of the store with a cash register. They are just handing you the free piece of cheese or whatever it is. And they're sitting there and they're telling you, this is some delicious cheese. Here's how you might want to cook with it or whatever. And they are just giving you value. And what happens in your mind is you have, first of all, an appreciation. Second of all, you feel a level of obligation. And so they are, and they're not sitting there saying, anything beyond that. This is Costco too, if you're not a big tra- Trader Joe's uh, fan. And you can kind of see it a little bit more clearly. I don't know why at Costco, but you know exactly where you can buy that if you are interested. And they know that it drives crazy sales that you know that don't happen if they don't give that free sample. And so they know that it works. But the point that I feel like it's really important to stress is that's not when you ask for the sale. So that is not when if you're out there at that top of the funnel marketing piece where let's say you are doing a blog post like on a guest website or you've got a piece of PR and you've you've got an article that you wrote for Forbes or whatever the case might be halfway through that article you don't then talk about how they they should hire you because it just imagine how gross that feels if you're yeah. At Costco, and sometimes they they do kind of ask a little bit too much, but it's always like you feel like you want to pull back and like right. walk away more quickly, and it just doesn't work as well. So so it's important to recognize that the call to action and that ask for the sale doesn't happen until the bottom of the funnel, and so you have to move them through the psychology of that. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people get really wrong. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and you know. I might go back and, and reread the book now so I can think of uh, all the other examples. But it's really, you know, presenting, you know, pricing strategies, another another element of that, you know, this idea like there's, you know, pricing that is dramatically expensive on a web, web page or for a yeah. product that th- they don't actually expect you to people to purchase. Yeah. What they expect is for people to purchase the, the middle, right. the middle cost thing because yes. that seems far let lower costs, especially in comparison to the far higher price that's right next to it. So if you yes. like you're kind of getting a deal. Yes. That's it's, more for e-commerce, you know? Yeah, but. but I love this idea because I feel like lawyers can use this too in pricing and I've used it regularly. There was another really good book about the psychology of decisions and, and I'm blanking on the name right now, but it has to do with 
Oh, the rationally irrational or some, some version of that. Mm -hmm. But what he describes is if you have three choices and it was, it was something like a magazine subscription where you could get the magazine, you could get like, that's option A. You can get the magazine with something else. Let's just call it a tote bag, option B. And then there's option C, which is the decoy option, which is more expensive. And it's basically meant they don't mean to sell option C. It's meant to make A and B look better. And that's it. And as soon as I read that, it was just like, you know, your, your mind is blown because now I see it everywhere. It's like, as soon as I learned about fonts, now I see bad fonts everywhere. But you see these three options and you realize that people really know what they're doing with pricing because it's just making you go through that decision process faster, even though it makes no sense. Those prices were the prices. And you could afford it or you couldn't afford it. And you wanted the tote bag or you didn't want the tote bag. But that C option, you were never going to buy. It just made the other ones, made you feel better about those other ones. Yeah. And, you know, that's where you have the intersection of marketing and advertising and and, and psychology experts. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. All right. So coming back. All right. So just as a, f- a note to the book review, we will have that on the book on the show page and put it in the library and all that stuff. But so coming back to advertising, the creative that we were talking about, there was a couple other questions I wanted to ask. So we talked a lot about testing, you know, making sure you have all the iterations and all of that. And so what other kind of tips do you have in terms of setting things up in the best way other than just kind of, you know, Facebook is super smart and Facebook is going to kind of, or meta, I suppose, is going to figure out a lot of this process. But what other things should people be paying attention to as they start going through these campaigns and they see the numbers roll in? Are there red flags that that should kind of, people should be paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, the the, the challenge is red flags are very unique on a per campaign basis. You know, our, sure. our best practice here is take the learnings from Meta on a creative from a creative standpoint and deploy them across all the channels. That's number one. When you're looking at Google search, you know, setting up your Google search ad account is very important in a specific structure that is good for you. It's not going to be a one size fits all, but things like using various ad groups or ad sets inside Google, such that you can easily distinguish between the types of keywords that are in the ad group. That's very important. It also gives Google a better sense of what you're trying to accomplish with each and it judges the effectiveness of each. So in terms of the accomplishments and the goals, Mm -hmm. do you see, I feel like that's a confusing point for some firms too. Like, you know, typically it's a phone call or filling out the form. Do you see people setting that that up in the wrong way or changing that partway through because they were realizing that that's, that's not working the way they wanted it to? Yeah. So the biggest thing you can do, one of the biggest factors for success, assuming like all the other things are good is the, the algorithm that you choose, like inside Google, for example. So when, when you think of Google search, most people think of cost per click or PPC ads, right? Like yeah. I want to pay for a click, but that's not, not actually what's happening in Google at this point. It, it does a little bit. You can still do that, but it's not really the best practices in most use cases. The best practice is telling Google, telling the algorithm on Google based on the objective, you know, what objective you want to achieve. I want leads. I want the maximum number of leads, or I want leads below a certain cost, 
or less relevant for a lot of advertisers is I want share of voice. I want my ad to show up at least 75% of the time for these keywords. That's oh, not gonna, yeah. yeah. Or I, I just want, you know, a low cost per click or whatever. Now the challenge is each of those metrics has a different perspective on what you'll get from the campaign. Share of voice doesn't mean you're going to get more leads. It'll actually, you'll get far fewer leads because people aren't going to be, not everyone searching for your keywords are going to transact or not right. going to share their information with you. So by choosing the algorithmic version of lower cost per lead, you actually get to take advantage of Google's algorithm to help you serve ads and get a click only when a person is very likely to submit their information to you. So you've got to like, just out the gate, setting up the campaign, you could set yourself up for a lot of success or a lot of failure, depending on what you understand about the algorithms and, and these platforms. Yeah. And what you tell the algorithm that your goal is. And so if you kind of go down that wrong path and you say, yeah, I think I want share of voice and that's really not what you want. You actually want phone calls or whatever, then that could be a pretty critical error. Yeah. And you'll, you'll never even realize like you, you just ruined the campaign before you even press start. Oh yeah. Ouch. <laughs> that's a lot of money down the drain, especially for some of these law firms that are in really competitive areas where those, those are some expensive ads. All right. So Robert, what is one big takeaway that you'd like people to get from this episode? We talked about design and ads and campaigns and kind of Facebook and Meta knowing your customer better than you might even understand, you know, where they're at, especially in terms of like their intent to purchase and a lot of different things. But what is the one big takeaway that you'd like people to get? One big takeaway is look at creative development as a must every three to four weeks, new creative every three to four weeks. And it doesn't have to like break the bank. Like the point is these have to be manageable and accessible to you. And you can do that. It's not particularly expensive. You don't have to spend 30 grand every every month to develop five ads on Meta. Because yeah. by the way, images work well on Meta. You don't have to make videos. You don't have to be custom videos. You've got to really find the creative that most resonates with your audience. That's like the foundational point and everything expands from there. So in terms of updating that creative, do you mean always and kind of in perpetuity to be doing new creative every month or so, or until you kind of hit your stride and you feel like everything's working? Or do you feel like it, it needs to always be updated even once you've kind of hit that stride? I would... I would define hitting the stride as you literally can't take any more business. Okay. Until that happens, which is a pretty high bar to achieve. Yeah. Develop new creative. Okay. Like don't do it for three months or six months. Do it yes. like until you're like, I have no, I have no more capacity. Like I yeah. just can't. I've got to, well, like, and at that point, less. you should be hiring some more attorneys in your firm. Right. <laughs> like, right. you in which case, you can then have capacity. the capacity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Like, you expand. <laughs> so you never really turn off the creative testing. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, I feel like it changes so much all the time. And you should be kind of developing new content and ideas. And, and you should have some sense of how your clients are changing too over time. And so what people were asking you last year might be slightly different this year. And if you just keep saying the same thing year after year, that's not going to probably do so well either. And and to to expand on that point, you end up finding your voice. We talk about yeah. finding your voice, and, and I use that in quotes because you know you think about that as like 
YouTubers and, and people yeah. who make TikToks and they could be doing anything from dancing to, you know, <laughs> talking about astrology, like stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think about. Yeah. But businesses need to find their voice. They need to find the right type of communication that really resonates with people. Social media is challenging because you can't 100% guarantee who's seeing that. Like it, you yeah. can't get the volume there, et cetera. So advertising is a really direct path to growth, even if you're just using it to find what your voice is. So over time, so that's one thing, finding your voice and then reorienting your business around exactly what you said, what consumers need from you right now. Because yeah. a couple of things. Number one, to your point, consumers what consumers want from your business to change, but also what the platform wants from you changes. Like yeah. right now we're in a place where, you know, static imagery is doing well on, on meta, but there might be a point where that's not the case. Sure. Yeah. So you don't want to be left behind marketing like it's 2023 when you're trying to market in 2028, you know, like yeah. things yeah. will change. Right. Well, and, and to go back to that whole point about we're not really looking at keywords anymore. Like that was a hundred percent of the strategy a few years ago. And yeah. there's a lot of people that are still kind of stuck in that idea. And those are the people that are getting left behind right now because they're not kind of paying attention and pivoting. So yeah. Okay. Awesome. That was a great set of takeaways. <laughs> So awesome. Well, this was a really successful episode. I think there were so many useful tidbits, but also like big picture ideas in terms of how to use all of this paid advertising in a really effective way and um, to think about it differently so that it really works for you and helps you to grow your firm. So Robert Brill is the CEO of Brill Media and uh, he focuses on paid advertising and media. And there's so much more content on his site, which we will link to and your social media and all of that good stuff on the show pages. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Karen. Pre appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CouncilCast podcast. Be sure to visit our website at council-cast.com for the resources mentioned on the episode and to give us your feedback. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate if you could rate and review the podcast on Apple and subscribe to your favorite podcast platform. See you on the next one.